And today's sponsor is Reconciled. Reconciled invoices your clients, pays your bills, and delivers clear and accurate financial reports every month automatically. Ready to streamline your financials and prepare your business for the next big step? Visit Reconciled.com today. Also sponsored by www.smallbizacquisitions.com. Are you dreaming of acquiring your first U.S.-based small business but don't know where to start? Visit www.smallbizacquisitions.com exit and hit that apply now button to apply to this unique partnership program. Hello and welcome to the How to Exit podcast where we introduce you to a world of small to medium business acquisitions and mergers. We interview business owners, industry leaders, authors, mentors, and other influencers with the sole intent to share with you what it looks like to buy or sell a business. Let's get rolling. And now a moment for our sponsors. I want to highly recommend you get Acquisition Aficionado magazine. Every month, Acquisition Aficionado magazine brings you tactics for business buying and selling you won't find anywhere else. Learn firsthand from industry leaders who share their success stories, featuring in-depth interviews and stories from leading figures in the business acquisition industry. This multi-platform mobile magazine speaks to acquisition entrepreneurs wherever they are in the journey. And I want you to visit acquisitionaficionado.com today. Welcome to the How to Exit Podcast. Today, I'm here with Joshua Catlett. He's an investor advisor, primarily, I guess, in the private healthcare sector. And I bet you've ventured into some other stuff, too. We're going to have a great time today. Thank you for being on the show, Joshua. No problem. Looking forward to it. Now, we talked beforehand. You can call me Ron. I should be calling you Josh. I'll do better about not calling you Joshua. I just read the screen sometimes. Amazing. I won't get offended. Yeah. So how did you get into this? Where did you start from? Kind of give us your origin story. Where are you located? Because I know you're on the other side of the pond from me. I'm located in, in the UK between London and Oxford. I've been fairly entrepreneurial from a young age. E- even looking back at my sort of school days, I guess my first first play into a business or, or the entrepreneurial world was in selling protein powders, believe it or not. I didn't really know what profit was at that point. So I never, it, it wasn't structured as a business. I didn't do it to make a profit. Simply, I set up a supplier contract with a protein powder supplement distributor in the UK, and I purely did it so I could gather orders from other friends, family, colleagues in and around the gym, and they effectively funded my protein and supplement habits. So (laughs) that was my first venture into entrepreneurialism. But my first proper business was founded at 22. So just prior to that, I just came out of university. I had qualified as a physiotherapist. I did two years working in a a private organization. I had a fairly odd start to my career. Most physios go into the NHS or they'll go down a, maybe into the military or private practice. Mm -hmm. I I went into an occupational health company and worked in a service redesign leadership management role. It's not particularly clinical or or hands-on. In fact, my my boss at the time was very big into functional capability assessments, um, Mm -hmm. which is much more prevalent in the US than it it is in the UK. And and I was actually sent over on a couple of occasions to the US to to work with a a company called uh, JTEC based in Utah, uh, uh, learn some of their measurement devices and and bring that skill set back to the UK. So that was sort of my, my start in professional life. 
while I was with that company, I was working on one of their largest, largest contracts, a, a large, large car manufacturer based in the UK. They had three sites and I was responsible for the occupational health team at the site near Luton. So I was heading up that site, running the occupational health team uh, with a particular focus on the physio aspect. And I like to think I was doing a fairly good job. Anyway, unfortunately, the, the client at the time decided they wanted to break with the company I was employed by, um, but they really liked what I had done with the business or, or with the department. So they approached me and said, look, Josh, we don't like how the overall contract's being managed, but we're really pleased with what, what you, you've done. Uh, you've made some really good changes and big efficiency savings. If we split with the company that employs you and look to kind of go out to tender, will you tender for it? I'm a pretty moral guy, pretty stand-up guy. So I uh, said, so, so I will, but only if I've got the blessing of my uh, boss at the time. He'd been very good to me. Anyway, so I, I approached him and said, look, you're, you're going to lose this contract anyway. And I'm ready to move on. I'd like to tender for this on my own. Would you give me, uh, give me your blessing? And uh, thankfully he did, which I was hugely appreciative of. So that's why I, I bid for this tender. I set up a company, bid for this tender. I actually got a bit of investment behind me, looking to set up an occupational health physio group. And uh, I thought, wow, this is fantastic. Business is easy, isn't it? And they turned around and said, thanks for your bid. We're giving it to somebody else because they came in at half the price. So that was my first <laughs> hard lesson in business, if you like. That was a pivotal moment that made me go off on my own, but um, it didn't, didn't work out as a uh, success. Anyway, I ended up with uh, some investment left over uh, from the investors. And I was thinking, gosh, what am I going to do with this? How am I going to... The one opportunity I had has uh, not come to fruition. So I went to market, looked to tender for other opportunities, uh, again, fa fairly naively in that trying to tender for large occupational health contracts as a company with uh, no trading history, no balance sheets, nobody was interested. So uh, I had this pot of money, I had no sales coming in, I had sort of dwindling savings to, to support me personally, and uh, had a few conversations with my mentor at the time and decided to use that pot of money to make my first acquisition. So I bought a small private practice and that was in, in Hertfordshire, again, just on the outskirts of London. And that was the first business I bought and it was a real labor of love, owner-operator venture. I did a bit of the clinical work. I sat behind reception. I uh, made, made the elderly clients cups of tea, roped my family and friends in to paint the place, do the gardening, you, you name it. So yeah, I said real, real labor of love. Sorry, real quick, ahead. before we go too far, let's clear up a couple of terms because we have a, a language thing here going on. On the other side of the pond, there's certain things are called certain things and here it's called something else. Physio, is that like a physical therapist? Yeah, I, I think the remit is slightly different. Uh, I think in the States, it tends to be a little bit more rehab focused, okay. uh, whereas in the UK, it's a little bit more um, treatment focused. Uh, again, there, there, there's, a, there's a fairly big difference in, in the practice, whether you're in private practice or whether you're in the NHS. But yeah, I, th I think bro broadly speaking, the term in America is physical therapist. We have an um, occupational therapist too. So if you just like got something like starting to have early signs of like carpal tunnel or something like that, you can have an occupational therapist come in and look at your desk layout design and that type of stuff and make suggestions. But a physical therapist here would typically, like I've had a bunch because I used to do sports a lot, race motorcycles and stuff. 
all the physical therapists I've ever seen is because I've had ACLs replaced and arms dislocated and shoulders dislocated. They're humpy, they're humpty dumpty doctors are trying to put you back together again. So there, there is a difference. Okay, cool. So you're more broad spectrum, anything physical, yeah, motion yeah, related. And again, I've not been, I guess, directly in that space operating mm -hmm. for a while, but I think the sort of dominant profession privately is chiropractic, your side of the pond. Whereas obviously we do have chiropractors over here, but it, it tends to be a, a smaller proportion. Um, mm -hmm. Physiotherapists tend to be the, the sort of more dominant. And I guess uh, it's around 50-50 splits. So half work in the NHS uh, and there's a very broad remit from respiratory physio to uh, burns and plastics rehab to, to kind of your typical ACL or shoulder dislocation problems. And then private practices, which tends to be very musculoskeletal injury focused. Although there are community care, physios, elderly care, it is a very broad. The other term is tender. When you say you're going to tender a business, is that buy it or run it or operate it? Or what's the... Uh, uh, yeah, the, the process of bidding for a, a, a contract. Okay. Uh, okay. So you're out there soliciting. I think we would say soliciting or bidding or what? Yeah. But I, I was trying to figure it out right there for a second when you're chatting, like, okay, Tinder, is that like where he's running it or, right? I suppose the, 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 the form that I'm referring to is a slightly more formal process of putting in a bid uh, mm -hmm. as competitors, as opposed to, I guess, kind of cold outreach and forming a relationship and providing a service. Uh, the, the company that I was working or, or that I was um, uh, putting in a bid for at the time, uh, they put out a formal requirement. They opened it up to the market. They got a, a number of bids in, and as I said, mine was sadly less competitive than the winning bid. Yeah. Okay. So I was just curious. I don't know if it's the same way over there, but over here, dental practices, doctor's offices, chiropractic offices, private practices and stuff, they trade the operator, right? There are some roll-ups. We do here. You can't buy. I couldn't buy one. You have to be a licensed practitioner, or you have to set up what's called a management organization, so a DSO, MSO medical service organization or a dental service organization, then you can actually own the business. And there's a lot of rules as to you can own a medical office and hire in doctors. You have no say into how they treat the patient. You can just have say over which doctors are employed or not and office, that type of stuff. But uh, it's a very niche market. I know I have good friends that are chiropractors. They've sold. Eventually he came back and circled back around and started another one. But there are probably just a handful of less than that, probably two or three decent brokers in town that know how to sell chiropractic offices and stuff. And it's usually selling, it's usually senior generation selling to younger chiropractors coming out of college and, and that type of, or, or schooling and stuff. Is that what you see too? Is a lot of their aging demographics selling to newer grads or what is a? It depends on the type of business, really. The, the smaller practices have less options in, in terms of a sale. If you're turning over a couple of hundred thousand and you are working within the business and, and most of that goodwill is associated with you as an individual, then you're not a particularly appealing or your business isn't a particularly appealing acquisition target to most buyers. Mm -hmm. um, in that respect, your best chance of sale is to an individual practitioner who, who wants to take over your caseload and, and run the business. 
uh, or, or a local competitor that wants to absorb your caseload. And incidentally, that's not really the kind of business that, that I'm supporting now. It was the kind of business that I bought. So after buying my first one, which was a small sort of owner operator led business, I then went on to do, uh, I guess you would describe it as a bit of a buy and build model, but I made seven acquisitions in that space and they ranged from a hundred thousand turnover to over a million turnover. So some sort of fairly small companies, companies that you know, I, I would struggle to buy or sell these days and, and some much larger ones. And my journey was I, I bought all these businesses. I opened a number of organic sites. I put a bit more process infrastructure. And at that point, I sort of stepped away, became CEO and was on the business rather than in the business and created what became perhaps not the largest in the UK, but certainly one of the top 10 private physio groups in the UK, which I then later sold or part exited to private equity. Okay. So that's cool. So we know what you bought and what you grew. What does your typical client look like now? What's the size range? Is it like they're up, they're running, they've got other physicians or physios or whatever working for them, they're doing a million plus. What is the target demographic for what you're looking at now? Yeah. So uh, I'm no longer on the buy side in that mm -hmm. sector. Did my buy and build. I uh, kind of concluded that exit. And subsequently I've set up a M&A advisory consultancy and brokerage. And mm -hmm. um, so effectively I'm working as a, a broker at the moment, but very much in the, in the niche sector of medical and healthcare practices. Mm -hmm. There are factors that influence saleability and valuations. Uh, I don't have a minimum cutoff, but as a, as a broad, broad range, we typically tend to start around the sort of 200, 250,000 turnover. Mm -hmm. Anything smaller than that, unless the owner is not too involved in the business or it's in a geographically very appealing area with lots of, of buyers is quite a challenge to sell. It's seen as quite a risky acquisition target. So generally speaking, most of the clients I work with, their practices are 200,000 turnover plus, and they're not too involved in the business. The largest on my books at the moment is 1.2 million, and that's in the private practice sector. And that's not, not by choice. That's simply because there, there are very few businesses in the sort of physical therapy sector in the UK that are over a million. I don't have exact figures, but I would assume it's around, say the top five to 10% of, of physical therapy practices are a million plus. I, uh, incidentally, I've had a number of conversations with, and I've got a number of businesses that are expected to engage me that are two, three, four million turnover, but they tend to be a bit more either multidisciplinary in the uh, more specialists psychology fields. Mm -hmm or um, uh, medical device companies or medical marketing companies, uh, perhaps on the peripheries of the healthcare sector or business serving the healthcare sector. Do many of them franchise? So one, one of the physical therapies things I went through, now this is from an injuries, but I was in a bad car wreck and lost motion in my right arm, never gained it all the way back. I still can't fully extend my right arm. But the physical therapist that they sent me to, the doctor sent me to, was kind of cool in the fact that it was I don't know if it's truly a franchise under the franchise laws here, but they had multiple offices. All my physical therapy exercises and stuff were in a computer system. So a good example of why I liked it is I was in one little town, but for a little while I needed to go down about 150 miles away for about a day and a half. And I was going almost every day right after the car wreck for back and for multiple issues. They had, I was there for a while doing different exercises. And uh, but they had an office down there. I showed up 
one of the ladies met me at the door, greeted me, pulled up my stuff on the thing, and I did the exact same exercises and had the, it was almost like the same doctor was seeing me. It was a different dude, of course. And then his team helped me do the exact same exercises, recorded the same measurements and stuff. And I didn't feel like I missed a beat. Does that happen a lot? I'd never seen it before. Everything I've ever been to before was small private practices or you have to see the same doctor every every single time. Nobody else knew what you were up to. Yeah, I, I think it's a problem in the UK as well. The physio market in particular is very fragmented mm-hmm. and, and there's a real, I mean, there's lots of fantastic practices out there, but uh, the, the, the quality uh, and the journey that you have is very inconsistent. You, you'll have some practices that are still using paper filing systems and drawing stick men figures for, for your exercises. <laughs> there are others that are using some of the fantastic technology that's out there these days and sending auto reminders and giving you sort of biofeedback tools via apps that you can, that will enhance your engagement. But they are, as I said, that there is, it's fragmented. So there there isn't a nationwide franchise model and there isn't a nationwide high street model at the moment mm-hmm. i form a company which has now been sort of taken on and is a private equity company or a majority shareholder and driving that forward that's effectively what they're trying to do they're trying to create a nationwide high street brand of physio clinics but that's under a uh, directly owned model as opposed to franchise I think there's, there are some successful franchise models that are based over in Australia and New Zealand that have they've done well over there, looks to come to the UK, but I don't think it's ever really taken hold. The reason I asked, because I see an opportunity there and I don't, other I than the one I went to, and I can't even remember what it's called. It was like, but I mean, they were set up in little strip malls too. So you walked in, all their exercise equipment was in the exact same spot. I like, I almost kind of knew where to go set and like, you have your own routine. So I kind of knew where my next station was, like, because they had me doing different things. I had severe vertigo because of it. I had a hematoma during the wreck. I had severe vertigo, so I do the balance exercise. They had a bunch of stuff I had to do, and I just kind of knew, okay, well, that's going to be around the corner over here in this area. And sure enough, it was, right? So there's a huge opportunity, I think, for a roll-up or something to where you put everybody consistency. The same practice is done across the board you share knowledge back and forth and stuff i just don't understand why it hasn't been more proliferant i don't know why it's not happening more where there's like not a standard big national franchise for some of these type of industries yeah and i think uh, i mean you're absolutely right there there is an opportunity and Mm -hmm. uh, i know there's lots of conversations going on with a lot of the sort of senior players, more established practices as to how one would take advantage of that opportunity. And, and personally, I think franchising is the right play. Why, why, why it's not been done yet, I, I, I couldn't say. But perhaps what one of the barriers at the moment, uh, particularly after the COVID pandemic and Brexit, uh, uh, is there's been a, a real um, recruitment challenge within the sector. I think had Brexit not happened and had the pandemic not happened, Perhaps we would have seen some more consolidation in the market, a few more franchising models emerge. But I think that those two events have very much impacted the development in this market. But I suspect we'll see some exciting things over the next few years. I've noticed since I've only been in this space for a couple of years now, but I have noticed that each industry has its own valuation models, right? Some of them are just multiples of EBITDA or seller's discretionary earnings. A lot of them are that way. Right now I'm doing like digital assets, blogs, newsletters and stuff that's done off of multiples of revenue just because they're all high profit margin. 
There's just different ways. What's a typical valuation model for these businesses you advise? If somebody was wanting to think about selling it, how are they valued? Yeah. I mean, we, we, we typically use a, an EBITDA model that uh, tends to be the one that uh, most buyers apply when making offers. Um, I'd say as, as a rule of thumb, uh, a multiple of three to five is pretty, pretty normal in the industry. A couple of exceptions to that. So if the business is uh, very owner-operator led and uh, as I said, around sort of 250 turnover mark or smaller, you might see offers at two, two and a half times just to reflect the risk or, or you may see a, a more heavy earnout component on that. And again, the reverse of that is true for the larger businesses because there's very few businesses that are a million plus in this sector. Again, there seems to be, there's a bit more competition and uh, I, I have seen multiples of six at the higher end, uh, yeah. those size businesses. If you include performance-based earnouts, then uh, it might nudge it to sort of seven, eight. But yeah, as a rule of thumb, uh, anything between 250,000 turnover and a million turnover, which is the vast majority in this sector, uh, three to five times multiple uh, of EBITDA. But of course, the important thing to, to highlighting that is that's adjusted EBITDA. So most, a lot of these businesses are owner operator. They obviously pay themselves in the most tax efficient way. And therefore the profits can be artificially inflated or deflated. So obviously appropriate adjustments have to be applied. And I typically see most businesses in this sector operating around somewhere between a 12 and 22% margin, which that's pretty, pretty normal. That's pretty decent. So. What's the time on market for one of these? The reason I'm thinking this is your buyer pool is either strategic, meaning it's a, somebody already in the business, somebody acquiring it, or licensed professional, right? At least here you'd have to, unless you're playing a roll-up strategy where you're, you've set up a DSO, MSO, or something like that. I couldn't buy one. You could, you're licensed. I don't know how the license would transfer over to the United States, but if you were licensed here, you could do it, but if not... You'd have to go a big roundabout way, and it's not outrageously expensive. I think you can set up a DSO or MSO in most states for about twenty to twenty-five thousand, but that's just part of what you'd have to do to buy a physical therapy slash dental office slash medical office or even a veterinarian services. Anything that's got a medical license. So there, there's there's not as much red tape around physical therapy practices. Mm-hmm. So if, if you want to acquire, or if you want to set up a, a, a medical practice and mm-hmm. you need more invasive procedures, then you need CQC accreditation. That's Care Quality Commission. If you're buying a physio practice, there isn't that requirement. You can be an outside investor and go and buy a physio practice uh, with no prior experience running mm-hmm. it. The, the regulation side comes with the individual professionals. So I guess there, there's there's two things to look out for. The physiotherapy in the UK is a protected title and physiotherapists therefore need to be registered with the Health and Care Professions Council. All of the physios that you're buying have to be regulated, but but that's an individual thing as opposed to a business thing. It's always advisable that they're members of the uh, main governing body, the Charter Society of Physiotherapy, which also gives them sort of malpractice insurance. But again, that's on an individual level, not a company. The company that you're acquiring, although quite often I see the company owners relying on the individual practitioner's insurance, should have its own uh, professional indemnity malpractice insurance mm-hmm. and doesn't have to have any direct sort of association with the regula- regulatory body. 
That's not to say that some of the top ones act in a more hospital, operate more like a hospital, and they do have CQC, but they tend to be the physio practices that also have orthopedic consultants working in there, which do require that regulation. The other thing, which is, I guess, it's not a regulatory requirement, but there are some requirements placed on those businesses by insurance companies, and the insurance companies are the one that ones that refer a lot of work. So the clients typically come from either insurance companies, private individuals that simply walk in off the street and say, hey, can you fix my knee? Or, or you have uh, companies that are, I guess, acting as a go between the insurance company and the practice, uh, which we refer to as intermediaries. And um, intermediaries have a lot of sort of service level agreements and KPIs that they put in place. The insurance companies have slightly stricter requirements, and it's usually around, I mean, some typical examples from the likes of Axa and Bupa, they, they require you to have a lead therapist who has X number of years experience. They must have had their HCPC license for a you know, minimum number of years, things like that. So it's, it's not totally unregulated, but it's loosely regulated. And therefore, from a buy and build perspective, is uh, quite an attractive market. I have not looked into it, whether or not you can buy a chiropractic office, because it is here, depends on who you ask. And, and if you ask a doctor, if a chiropractor is a real doctor, they'll tell you no. But if you ask a chiropractor, if he's a real doctor, he'll tell you yes. And I don't know there's any clean, clear cut definition of that. They both go to an enormous amount of school and stuff. But I'm, I'm curious. I haven't done the research. Um, I'll have to Google it after the Google it after the show. Now I'm curious is, can I buy a chiropractic, a physio business here? without having to set an MNSO up, like a medical service organization up or a physical therapist office, right? Because I'm not not exactly sure on that one because that might be one of those, might be slightly under the radar of these licensing authority type of figures and they may allow it. The United States is a little weird on that type of stuff because it's like X is got it regulated this way, but your Y, you're kind of X, but you, you don't have the license to do X, but you you know there's a subset of it. You can get that. And then, it, then they change it on you. <laughs> the guys that are licensed start losing business to the guys that aren't. And all of a sudden there's new rules put in place. So tell me about if you've had some exits, you've had some acquisitions and stuff. Are there any lessons learned in, in some of those that you apply to both yourself and your clients in the future? Did you learn anything from exiting the big business you built out to private equity that like, okay, I'll never do X, I'll never do this again. Or, hey, I really like the way that went and everybody should kind of know something about it. Yeah, I think, I mean, I've learned a lot of, a lot of lessons with every business that I've bought, lessons with every business that I've sold on behalf of clients. And, and I learned a lot of lessons with working with private equity. I think the big one with working with private equity is the value of having that corporate governance, regular reporting, systems, processes, structures in place. I think it really, it, it can help, help an organization at a certain stage. Uh, personally, that side of things wasn't so much for me. I mean, I've always been a fan of, well, I've always bootstrapped companies. I've always mm, been yeah. a fan of sort of scrappy deals myself. Suddenly having a bit more red tape and restriction, I, I personally found that a bit suffocating, but perhaps a little strong, but certainly it didn't, you know, it didn't allow me to, to flourish. But having those additional expertise and contacts around you was, was excellent. I think the advice I'd give anyone that's looking to work with private equity is choose carefully. Prior to me accepting the offer I did and working with a private equity firm that I did, I was approached perhaps on a certainly a monthly basis, if not a weekly basis. And a lot of the term sheets that I get were 
sneaky. They had very attractive valuations, which as a young entrepreneur, I saw sort of dollar signs and thought, great, I'll go with that deal. But on closer inspection, actually, they were pretty restrictive uh, and effectively it was a ways of the most sort of silently taking over the company. And unless you got a, a sort of billion, billion pound, billion dollar exit, ultimately you would end up with uh, very little uh, share in the exit. They were the deals that I rejected. Interestingly, I went with uh, a private equity firm that was backed by a, a fairly well-known UK entrepreneur. It was mostly his money that was being invested. Mm -hmm. uh, he was very keen on technology. He shared values with me. He, he loved the sector. Mm -hmm. uh, and as much as, as much as it was an investment for him and his team, there was certainly a passion behind it and they shared a vision with me. So I, I had a gut feeling about them being the right partner. And I'd always say, look, stick with your guts. Don't just go for that high valuation. The business did achieve a very good valuation. Mm -hmm. uh, it was a very, very fair term sheet, but actually there were higher offers on the table, but I selected this particular partner because I, I felt I could work with them. And that was more important. I think gut, gut feeling is key in that. In terms of the acquisitions that I've done, I think my, my number one lesson is don't underestimate, I guess, the nervousness that or the, uh, the worry that goes through staff's heads when they find out their company is being bought. Whenever I've made mistakes or failed, which is plenty in acquisitions, um, it's usually been because uh, I have not communicated enough uh, and uh, it's usually caused an issue with a, uh, an individual uh, and usually in this sector, it's very uh, people centric. So. If you lose a member of staff uh, when you're acquiring a company, it can have a big impact on the business. Again, top tip on uh, acquiring in a, a people-centric and service-heavy business is over-communicate uh, from day one, keep people in the loop, and, and that will certainly help with a smooth transition. And today's sponsor is Reconciled. Are you an entrepreneur or business owner thinking about your exit strategy? Or maybe you've just landed a business through acquisition and the books just aren't the way you need them to be. Let me tell you about Reconciled, your dedicated partner for industry-leading virtual bookkeeping and accounting services. Reconciled pairs you with skilled professionals who empower you to grow your business and prepare it for success, whether that's your exit or taking that new acquisition to top performance. Imagine having high-level financial management without expanding your team, from bookkeeping to CFO services, tax advisory, and even fully outsourced accounting, Reconciled has got you covered. They help you make the best business decisions, keeping your end goal in mind. And the best part? Reconciled understands acquisitions as they have acquired three accounting firms in the past three years, and their founder, Michael Lee, mentors others in searching for acquisition, raising capital, or trying to aggressively scale. Reconcile invoices your clients, pays your bills, and delivers clear and accurate financial reports every month automatically. Ready to streamline your financials and prepare your business for the next big step? Visit Reconcile.com today and let them get your books in order. Reconciled, making bookkeeping a breeze. That's Reconcile.com. Also sponsored by www.smallbizacquisitions.com. Are you dreaming of acquiring your first U.S.-based small business but don't know where to start? Well, we've got the perfect solution for you, Small Biz Acquisitions. Led by the nation's leading small business buyer, Robert Nance, Small Biz Acquisitions offers a partnership program that gives you the keys to your dream business in as little as 90 days. Imagine having expert one-on-one -on -one guidance 
personalized mentorship, and even financial support from proof of funds to help with that daunting down payment. Yes, you heard that right. As a partner, they'll help you overcome the financial barriers so you can focus on what really matters, buying your first small business. If that's not enough, you'll have access to their team after the acquisition for continued support. So what are you waiting for? Take the first step towards small business ownership today. Visit www.smallbizacquisitions.com exit and hit that apply now button to apply to this unique partnership program. Remember, your dream business is a little as 90 days away and don't miss the golden opportunity. Robert only takes five new partners each month. Apply now. Yeah, I have my own criteria. Everybody has their own criteria, what they're looking for. And I kind of shied away from service-based businesses, mainly because at the end of every single day, all your revenue generating capability walks out the door and goes home. So in the doctor space, even like IT consulting sector and stuff like that, at the end of the day, if every asset you have walks out the door and goes to sleep in their own bed, <laughs> there's a little concerning you know, factor, there's no, a lot of those companies, especially IT and physio, your, your physical therapy slash chiropractic, the people are the business, right? And one of the reasons that I kind of shied away from that is inherently with acquisitions and mergers, people are resistant to change. It's very common to, to have the staff move around a little bit once there's a change too. They stayed because they were loyal to the, the previous doctor or the previous physio. They had the connection there. Now that's gone. Well, they like the new guy. It's a lot of uncertainty for them. So I can see where you're saying, if you don't communicate really well, it's disruptive to the to the company. You've got to be very tactful. You've got to tread carefully. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and I think as part of any offer, you need to think about how you're going to retain staff or mitigate the risk of their, their loss. What one technique I use when I was acquiring businesses is I would identify the sort of key revenue generators or the key, key staff and factor into my offer a golden handshake but for mm -hmm. those individuals again it would you know make me look like the, uh, the good guy coming in offering the bonus on, mm -hmm. on day one uh, and that bonus would be retained by those staff members so long as they remain with the business but for a certain amount of time mm -hmm. i've seen some really good deal structures that are i suppose they're earnout, they're part earnout in their nature but a lot of a lot of sellers get a bit wary of earnout deals. They don't like to be tied to a particular revenue. It makes them very nervous, and it's very hard to get someone to agree to that. Mm -hmm. But I did see a structure recently that I thought was very clever, where a buyer had made an offer, where with some opponent and a cash bonus after the owner of the business had performed, I think it was two hundred procedures, which I thought was nice because you're tying them into the business and the business's success, but you're also, it's very much within their gift to, to deliver. If, if they want to do those 200 procedures in six months and work really hard and get their cash bonus, mm -hmm. it generates the business, it keeps them involved uh, and they get that payout. If actually they want to be a bit more flexible and it takes them two years to achieve that, they still get the bonus. It's not associated with any other changes that are made. It's simply, it is a isolated KPI. If you like. So yeah, you, you can do some clever deal structures to mitigate the risk of key staff leaving but i think it's really important in this this sector i bet i can imagine there's a lot of these guys are small shops too they're probably 10 people or less is that very common yeah mostly i mean i'd, I'd say sometimes even quite a bit less than that i mean the average uh, size of the private physio practices in the uk is around three hundred and fifty thousand turnover typically doing fifty thousand net profit 
with a owner operator and four, maybe five associates working with them. So if you thought about, if you look at that and go, okay, the owner operator is, especially in, you know, maybe they have an x-ray tech or something like that. If they need that, like chiropractors, a lot of times use x-ray and, or they have, they have a couple of different people. It's like usually small. Any company where there's less than 10 people, you start losing one or two, that's a significant percentage of the company. Two people is, you lose the owner because the owner's transferring out and two other people, you just lost 30% of the company as far as manual hours is on there. It's a risk. I mean, I think mo most buyers are particularly worried about somebody leaving and taking their caseload with them. Mm. And that tends to be a, a rarity. I, I don't see that as often as people might think, but that tends to be the, 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 the overwhelming concern buyers have. Um, more, more commonly, what I see is um, somebody that isn't willing to work under a larger corporate entity and decides that they want to exit just before the company is sold or during the process or immediately after. And again, as a rough rule of thumb, you typically tend to find that when you lose a, a clinician and have to replace them, you, you, you should probably allow for around a 20% drop in revenue that's associated with that. So if it's managed well, you will retain a lot of those clients, but mm -hmm. it will take you a while to uh, rebuild up a caseload for a new practitioner. So allow for around 20% drop in um, in revenue. If you think about it, though, I mean, I've been through enough physical therapy, <laughs> unfortunately, with being having that car wreck. Before that, I raced motorcycles, and before that, I taught martial arts and participated in martial arts thing. So I've been in physical therapy more than most general adults. I've been through, and I've had six knee reconstructions. My ACL has been replaced three times, two times with one leg and one, one in the other. Kind of give you an example of <laughs> how many times I've been to the, the physical therapist and stuff. I was sitting there thinking about what you were saying about you lose a technician and you can lose 20% of your business. I know for a fact that after all those times going there, after a couple of times going, you have your favorites. Like I've waited as much as 30 minutes for my tech to be available because I like the way she did the exercise or he did the exercises. They didn't push it to I'm in pain leaving, but they pushed me and we got the stuff done. You almost build, it's like a doctor or anything else. You build a bond with them. And when they're gone, you're like, yeah, where did they go? I'll just go with them. <laughs> you know, you kind of try to hunt them down and go back and figure out where they went to work. And it goes with the tech too, because a lot of times it's not just the doctor. A lot of these, at least for me, I remember going to a bunch of these. I seen the doctor once. He gave me the list of stuff to do for the doctor, but the top guy, the head tech, and then his his attending techs, the whatever you want to call them, I forgot what they're called now. But you know, the other people working there, you get assigned one of those guys, and that's the one you work with for months, right? They're the one having you do the exercise, marking your measurements on the chart, and doing all that. And you're the ones that have small talk with you while you're. <laughs> You know, for me, when they were trying to get my arm to fully extend, they were dangling a 50 pound weight with my arm hanging off a table or trying to stretch it back out. They're the ones sitting there talking to you. Okay. It's only one, it's like a coach. Like you only got one more minute. Can you hold that for one more minute? And uh, you build bonds with these people. Yeah, I suppose it's, it depends on the nature of the injury and the rehab. If you've had a procedure done in hospital, let's say, a, let's say an ACL repair, the recovery for that is uh, longer. The uh, intensity of uh, physical therapy is, is much greater. And therefore, you're probably having quite regular visits and therefore you, you are going to build a bond and your particular practitioner moves down the road. There is a risk with that. Mm. And more commonly, what I see is that the vast majority of referrals that go into private practice in the UK tend to be uh, shorter cases. Someone goes in with shoulder pain, uh, I have three, four, five sessions and, and you, usually the practitioner, and that might be able to three, four, five week period and, mm -hmm. and they're discharged. Typically I see that there's in most private practices in the UK, there's 
your client base is being replaced quite quickly. Okay. Um, and you may not go back in again for another year, it, it, in which case you're probably not too concerned whether it's the same person or somebody else. You were thinking, I was just thinking about the longer term things. The difference between my first ACL replacement in 1995 or four and the one that happened, my most recent ACL replacement, which was in 2007, I think, was the first one I was in the hospital for two or three days. My leg went into atrophy. I actually had to do electrical therapy to like learn how to use my leg again. Spent a weeks in a weeks or almost a month in a wheelchair. Physical therapy, like full blown thing. The last surgery, same thing. And they used a third of my what's it called, patella on the other leg. The first one to replace my ACL on the other one. I'm probably butchering the name of that. But a third of the front, big fat ligament that goes out the front. The other two were done with cadavers. And the most recent one was, I think it was in 2007. It was outpatient. I show up. They gave me a local, like a lower, it was still a spinal tap type of thing. But mm -hmm. when it wore off, they handed me a pair of crutches and told me to go home. And the physical therapy, I showed up. He gave me a list of exercises to do. Now, I've done them two times before. This was my third you know, thing. He gave me a list of exercises I do, and I do everything from home. The one thing I did benefit was I got full range of motions on both of those. So I, I did every step that they said. And that's why I was kind of dis disheartened out of the car wreck that I didn't get full range of motion on my right arm back. Is because I've been through all these things before and they told me you're never going to get 100% of your range of motion back. And I'm like, yeah, I will because I'm going to do every exercise you tell me to do. I'm going to do it the way you tell me to do it. And then I did that with the physical therapy on my arm and it just didn't, the damage was too much. That said, you build relationships with those people. All the stuff I've had was probably bad enough. I was there going there for weeks as opposed to two or three times. I'm sure I've had a few times where I went to the physical therapist for two or three times and I was done. But the ones that stick in my mind are the ones I had to go in there for a long time. I suppose it's, uh, I mean, if you're looking at it from a, a perspective, yes, it is a risk. Um, uh, the, the demand for uh, private physio is, is so high at the moment and the supply is very limited that actually pe people choose to go to a practice based on its location, availability and perceived quality. And I think it's, the demand is so high, I think we're moving to a point where people go to a brand uh, or a location rather than to an individual. Anyway. It happens here too. And when, when, with the arm thing, with the physical therapy, the, I, I, I got the rest of it back. My neck was fine and my balance came back fairly well. The only thing I wanted to keep going there for was the arm. And when I, your insurance gives you so many treatments. And after that, it's like, if you don't have it fixed by now, it won't be fixed. I offered the, the small company they had kind of a chain. I said, like, I'll just pay it out of pocket and I'll keep coming until we get it working. And they couldn't because they were so booked up with that insurance and other insurance providers. They just, they actually had booked my slot knowing that my insurance ended that day. That was supposed to be my last treatment. I would have to wait weeks and weeks before I could get a new slot to come back in. They were that booked. So I, it's probably the same here as being like, it's pretty backlogged. They make room for injuries and stuff like that. But I think the demand here is just the same. I don't think there's enough the supply yeah. of trained professionals hasn't caught up with the demand of people needing their expertise. Yeah, in the NHS, which seems to free, free healthcare in the UK, mm -hmm. uh, waiting lists, I mean, it will vary by, by sector, but waiting lists can be three, four, five, six weeks, and, and, and that, that's pretty good. It, it can be a lot longer. Uh, and once you do get in, the resources are so limited that you may get two or three sessions, they may be three weeks apart. There are a lot of limitations to, to what you can get up from, from the NHS in terms of physio. 
NHS is a, an, an absolutely fantastic organization for emergency care. Uh, and that's where most of the resources go. But um, anything that is physical therapy or rehabilitation, um, certainly the quality is great, but the, the resources are limited. I have a, here's one for you. I'm curious if you, uh, out of curiosity, because I'm interested in this industry a little bit. What about telemedicine? Is that happening in there with this type of stuff? I know during COVID, one of my friends got hurt, occupational hazard. He got hurt driving a forklift. <laughs> he drove off the dock on a forklift on accident, backed off of the dock. He got hurt pretty good. But this physical therapy was done from a web, like a Zoom, right? They gave him exercise sheets. They sent him PDF of exercise sheets. They would get on there and they have consultations. They would even made him move his laptop and show it, like, show me how you're doing the exercise. Why are you having pain doing that particular one? And they just did everything on camera. Is I wonder if that stuck after COVID lifted. I wonder if a lot of, like, my doctor right now, I can either go see him or I can meet him, send him an email, tell him what's going on. He might pop up a an email chat and I can talk to him over the thing. So if it's things like he knows, like my allergies, medicine's not working quite right anymore, he needs to switch up that. They'll just switch it up and I don't have to go see them. It's telemedicine. Are they doing that in the UK for some of this now or? To a degree. So telemedicine is very popular in a lot of fields. More so I think in sort of psychology and GP appointments, private GP appointments. It hasn't stuck as much with physical therapy. And I think that there's a perception that you need to go and see somebody and be touched. Which I think there's a bit of a mixed opinions within the sector. And I think really the effectiveness of it very much depends on what the problem is. Mm-hmm. Um, I think medicine can be very effective uh, in the uh, physical therapy space for certain uh, conditions. Mm-hmm. And I certainly think that if it enables you to uh, access those services uh, quickly and efficiently, it's great for your, your, your initial session. But being in an environment where you've got the right equipment, you've got someone supporting you for a lot, a lot of injuries and a lot of rehab, it's still still the preferred method, I think, for most people. Uh, and a lot of it's perception. <laughs> Clients in, in that sector are less comfortable uh, or, or, or find telemedicine less appealing. They'd rather go and see their physician. I can but see that. Like some of the exercises, like for my knee, I could do them all from home. As a matter of fact, when I did the last surgery, it was with Kaiser and they sent me, they're the ones that like did outpatient. Kaiser's a big HMO here, fairly well run, but they sent me home and gave me like exercise sheets. I went and seen the physical therapist, but he had me like only once every couple of weeks. We need to think, okay, I would go in for my measurements, but I would do the exercises. He'd show me the exercises. I'd do them at home, right? Stretching exercise, mobility exercises. And then he'd come in and measure me every once in a while. I would go in for them to measure range of motion. So it was kind of a hybrid on that. They didn't do anything over the telemedicine. This was 2007, <laughs> right? I was just curious if it's starting to pick up a little bit, like how much of it staying. The COVID made a shift in the industry because the reason I would be interested in it is it's an industry that won't go away. It's recession proof. And I wouldn't be interested in buying the actual company or, or investing in the company that's doing this stuff, but the guys providing the telemedicine software, it's not straight up Zoom. If you had something you could rebrand and create a tool that's for this, or somebody already done that, some type of SaaS around it, that'd be an unexpected, interesting adventure to have the support structure around telemedicine and stuff. Yeah, no, I, I think it's, I, I mean, you, you can deliver very effective physical therapy with a hybrid approach. Mm-hmm. Um, Again, it depends on what technology you've got and I guess the company delivering it. As I said, a, a lot of businesses in, in this sector in the UK are uh, small owner, owner operator, don't necessarily have the capital to invest in that kind of technology. 
and therefore for the best will in the world, it, it can end up being a Zoom session to replace a normal physical therapy session, which on its own probably isn't that efficient. Mm -hmm. But if you're pairing it with um, a system that can deliver a structured exercise plan with good guidance videos and tools for feedback between patient and therapist and interactions when scoring, then it can be absolutely fantastic. There's one company called PhysiTrack. I think they're the market leader platform mm -hmm. uh, that do deliver that technology. And, and it's fairly accessible to most practices. They have a monthly subscription model per team member. What do you see the market going right now? I think your industry like is a little bit recession for people going to get hurt. People are going to feel pain. People are going to feel like they need help mobility wise and stuff like that. I think it's recession resistant, but with the economy doing what it's doing, it's the uncertainty here in the United States, the interest rates are going up and everything like that. How do you see that impacting your market and your businesses? Yeah, I mean, I've seen continual growth in this sector for the last few years. De demand for private healthcare services in general seems, mm -hmm. seems to be growing. Again, an approximation, uh, I saw the vast majority of practices in and around London, they were seeing 30% growth since uh, compared to pre-pandemic numbers, mm -hmm. uh, the exception to that being central London, which uh, has been impacted by hybrid working. So just the volume of people uh, that are accessing those services near their work is lower. So central London demand has declined slightly, although that's that's sort of nearing pre-pandemic levels. But yeah, certainly home counties, affluent suburbs of London and other major metropolitan areas, there's been a big increase. Mm -hmm. I think there's a variety of factors driving that. There's less availability of physios, which means there's a bit of a supply problem and many unfortunately went under during the pandemic. So the practices that, that have survived have obviously picked up a large part of the market share. The NHS is under extreme pressure. You, you tend to find that during times of uncertainty and when people are under financial stress, that mental health and physical health or, or pain associated with it can be impacted. So there's a number of drivers that are very much pushing people to accessing private healthcare services, but mental health and physical health in particular. So as an investor that knows absolutely nothing about this industry, other than what we've learned today, and maybe a, a talk with somebody you might know, Ross, and some other guys in this industry, would you recommend outside investors to look at this? Like if I, if you were to talk to a guy like me or somebody else that like, we're looking for acquisitions, we're looking for well, good companies that run. If you don't have the background in this industry, is this something that somebody should be looking at? Or do you really need the background? Like you have the, the training and expertise in this industry. I, I think there's a huge opportunity, particularly for a buy and build in, mm -hmm. in this sector and potentially a franchising model. I think it's perfectly suitable as an investment for an, uh, somebody outside of the trade. Um, but I would encourage uh, anyone that does go down that approach to, to either find a platform business with uh, a decent infrastructure and a good clinical leadership team that they could then acquire bolt-ons or find a partner that could act as their clinical lead. Generally, one of those two approaches is going to enable you to enter the space. But as I said, the regulation is around the individual professionals. There's sort of limited regulatory constrictions. The demand is good. Again, I suspect that the biggest challenge that the industry faces at the moment is recruitment. Although that, that is slowly improving, I'm seeing a real shift or have seen a real shift in the last six months or so. We're seeing more candidates traveling from Australia, New Zealand, South Africa 
coming back to the UK and so they tend to be very good quality physios uh, and they're looking for work. So the, the labor market is improving. Um, yeah. Obviously they're still, uh, still, still impacted by, by Brexit, but yeah, certainly sort of more, more internationally we're seeing people coming over and filling those jobs. Awesome. So how can myself or the audience help you out? This is your chance. I don't think I told you beforehand. It's always okay to pitch on our show. So this is your chance to go, hey, sure. yeah. So this is your chance to go, here's the kind of companies I broker. Here's what I'm looking for. Or even if on your acquisition side, if you're still looking for acquisitions, here's what I'm looking to buy. Use this opportunity now to tell us how we can help you. Or if we have a company, what kind of companies you advise so that somebody listening to this, they know exactly what to bring to you. Sure. Well, so, so the main thing that I'm doing at the moment is I'm helping private practices to, to exit. If you're an owner of a private practice and you want advice on preparing your business for sale, valuing that business or, or taking it to market and selling, please do get in touch. We've got a very good success rate. And I think we're probably one of the only sector specialists in the UK that deal with exclusively with healthcare and medical practices, certainly people that are looking to sell. Mm-hmm. I have less of a network over in the States, so I could advise and I, I probably have less success on the sales side. So again, happy to have conversations, but my, uh, my market is pr- predominantly the UK. I do have some European buyers as well and sports practices over there. I'm always looking to increase my uh, list of investors in, and, and buyers. So mm-hmm. if there's any, anyone from, from the US or from the UK that's looking to enter into this market and make acquisitions, then please go to my website and sign up as a, a buyer. The website's verillo.co.uk. That's spelled V-E-R-I-L-O. And uh, have a browse of the businesses that are available or, or sign up. On, on a personal note, I am uh, always looking to invest uh, or join the board of, of companies. I'm interested in uh, startups or more established companies in a variety of sectors, but I prefer businesses that operate on the fringes of healthcare. I'm also looking for acquisition opportunities myself, um, again, predominantly in the UK uh, at the moment, but mm-hmm. um, again, any businesses that uh, serve the healthcare market, whether that be a healthcare marketing business, medical supplies, so are, are, um, uh, so op- operate within a niche, whether it be pediatrics or women's health, fertility clinics, mm-hmm. um, you know, serves one of those markets. Um, and uh, my target zone is probably businesses that are turning over at least a million, but ideally sort of 1.52 million and above. So anyone looking to exit and some of the business that matches those descriptions, I'm certainly open to acquisition and I have lots of colleagues and investment consortiums that would also sort of join me on, a, on various projects. Awesome. Sounds great. Well, I appreciate you being here today and I think we should call that a show. Thank you very much. I don't want to announce our new channel partners, the ITX Marketplace. Since 1998, ITX has created $5 billion in value by selling more than 225 IT businesses in 20 countries. ITX works exclusively with IT-enabled businesses generating between $5 million and $30 million who are ready to be sold and M&A decision makers who are ready to buy. For over 25 years, ITX has developed industry knowledge that helps determine whether a seller is a good fit for their buyers before making the match. ITX Mergers and Acquisition Marketplace, we have partnered with, has a proprietary database of 50,000 plus global buyers seeking IT service firms, managed service providers, 
Microsoft service providers, software as a service platforms, and channel partners with Microsoft Oracle, ServiceNow, and, self, and, and the Salesforce space. If you have an IT-enabled business, you're ready to sell, I want you to visit the itexchangenet.com slash marketplace, how to exit. That link will be in the show notes. Visit them now.